I don't know about you, but I just love that hymn. It's a lot like life. I, just the phrase, save all who dare the eagle's flight. Isn't that what life feels like sometimes? We're going to see today that whoever you are, wherever you are, whether on land or sea or in the air, he is strong to save. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, O Trinity of love and power, are those who protect us and save us. He doesn't save us from tribulation. No, we're going to see today that he does something far, far better. If you turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. You know, a few weeks ago, I had a procedure done that resulted in a whole lot of pain on and off for uh, a number of days. Many women who have had similar issues report that it's the kind of pain they experienced in labor and delivery. So now I can finally relate somewhat to what Julie went through, I guess. It's over now, and all's well that ends well, but do you know what I'm saying now? I'm saying feeling good is not feeling good. It's feeling nothing. <laughs> more and more that becomes the case as we wend our way through life. Maybe you can relate. That's the way life gets sometimes. Seems like if it's not one thing, it's going to be another. Over and over again. It happens again and again. So what are we supposed to do with this? I don't know if I dare say this in Bronco territory, but back in the day, I used to be a Green Bay Packer fan. And I lived in Colorado Springs. Though it was back in the 60s, so that was, I guess, my saving grace. And I have since reformed my ways, by the way. But all it took for me to become a Packers fan was a Packers win, one win. It was their Super Bowl win on December 31st of 1967, otherwise known as the uh, Ice Bowl. How many of you watched the Ice Bowl? A number of you uh, have. Uh, it's when Bart Starr scored the winning touchdown from the one-yard line with 13 seconds remaining and no timeouts. It climaxed a 68-yard drive in 12 plays in front of 50,000 fans who flooded the field before they could even kick the extra point. It was 13 below zero, 48 below with the wind chill. It was the coldest NFL game on record. It was so cold that it overwhelmed the field's heating system, leaving it rock hard. They said the field was like a sheet of ice. The referees had to use hand signals all through the game after their whistles froze to their lips at the uh, opening kickoff. It was crazy. It was voted the greatest game in pro ball and uh, football history. Now, why do you think the Packers won the game? Well, a lot of reasons, obviously, but one of them was this. Some of you may know that for the longest time, no professional football team that played its home games in a dome stadium had ever won the Super Bowl. Why would you think that would be? Well, a climate-controlled stadium protected players from, you know, the miseries of sleet and snow and mud and heat and wind and all the other problems that life could bring their way. 
Turns out all those things were not bad, but good, if you want to win the race. Those who had to brave the elements on a regular basis ended up better players and uh, more likely to win. And there's a lesson there. (laughs) The earth is uh, no dome stadium, is it? No, it's where we run the race through below zero weather, through earthquakes, winds, and fires, and God knows what else. It's where God turns us, as we'll see today, from the, from the uh, rookies that we all once were when we signed on to the faith into seasoned veterans who are gonna shine like stars forever. Joseph Parker was the great English preacher of the late 19th century one who had a passion for training young ministers. And a recurring theme in his training of these young ministers who had yet really to go through the hard knocks of life had to do with the necessity of pain, the inevitability of it. And he said, you gotta address this. He said, if you preach on suffering, you'll never lack a congregation. There are broken hearts filling every pew. Ever wonder why? Why is it that so often, so many Christians seem to get you know, more, it seems, than their fair share of pain? I mean, I thought we were the king's kids. I thought God was for us. Who shall be against us? I thought it was supposed to be this wonderful plan that he has for our lives. Isn't that what they told me when I, they shared the four spiritual laws? We come today to a passage that answers that age-old question. Why do bad things happen to God's people? It gives the ultimate answer to the question. As I titled this message, simply three words, why we suffer. It's in Romans 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom Also, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given us. Back to verse one, therefore, therefore, the ultimate conclusion, the ultimate effect of all this doctrine that I've been going through for the last four chapters, therefore, having been justified by faith, what's the result? Bottom line, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins this way because he's gonna go on to talk about tribulation as we've read. And in that context, the idea here is that when you're going through the ringer, the first thing you need to do is this. You never forget that God is for you. He's still for you because having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, which means that he's not against us any longer, nor will he ever be, not in a wrathful way because Christ took the fall, and that spells propitiation. His wrath has been appeased, no longer wrathful uh, uh, anger, and the Father now views us as righteous in Christ, which spells justification. 
He loves us now as if we already are what we would one day be as we've seen. And Paul says that all of that together spells peace. And during tribulation, what that means is this. It's the one truth that I know I anyway neglect to my peril when it feels like things are going against me. And that is that tribulation does not equal rejection. Tribulation does not equal rejection. It doesn't mean that the final shoe has finally fallen. It does not mean that God is against me. It does not mean separation. If you've been justified by faith, if you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, if, if, you've, if you're going through the fire, don't let it trigger something from your past or anything from out of nowhere, all these feelings that so easily come. Don't ever forget that there is not a child abuser behind it, not a torturer, not an abusive father like maybe your father once was, but a skilled refiner, a heavenly father, God who is for you. It, it may be his discipline, but it is not his rejection because having been justified by faith, we always have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom, verse two, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Which means this, you have peace because you're under grace. You're under grace. Grace. It's like the man, a man I knew in Houston back when we ministered there, back in the early 80s, who through no fault of his own went through hell on earth for many years. He, he took to wearing a baseball cap during that time. He'd wear it all the time from the moment he got up to the moment he went to bed, indoors, outdoors, and he had a single word embossed across the front in large, bold letters. You know, if I were him, I might have chosen the word, you know, used goods or reject or wrath or why, you know, because it can sure feel like that when uh, that's what you're under. That's what I felt like when sometimes when things go bad, the other shoes finally falling. It was just a matter of time. He's turned his back for good now. My father died when I was six and I flipped back to that. He's gone. He's abandoned me. I know it intellectually that he's not, but emotionally it's different. And now things are never gonna be the same. What word did he choose? He chose the, chose the word grace. Grace. Because he knew that he was a child of God and therefore contrary to what the child in him was saying, tribulation does not equal rejection. And so wherever he went, he had it like as a sign on his forehead like the Jews used to do, as a statement of faith that he was still under grace. He was always under grace. Maybe we ought to purchase the same kind of hats, hand out to those who are under whatever. Hats to say we're under his grace, therefore we can have peace. So Paul starts the passage here on suffering by reminding them of God's grace and peace. And it's so important not to forget this, that Paul does this, as you know, in uh, almost every one of his letters. He begins them by saying, what? Grace to you and 
Peace from God our Father and Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, from o, o Trinity of love and power, because having justi been justified by grace, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and moving on, we exalt in hope of the glory of God. He's talking about heaven here. He's referring to the time when we're gonna share uh, God's glory, when we'll be rising stars more than you know, Bart's star ever was in the glory of that Super Bowl game, or John Elway, or whoever. He's talking about us in our glory, when at last we're gonna finish the race and we'll fall, sometimes exhausted, sometimes uh, half dying, uh, usually dead at the finish line in the end zone as seasoned veterans thanks to all that happened. And the cloud of witnesses and all the hosts of heaven are gonna go crazy. In the space of a single verse, Paul takes us from the beginning to the end of the Christian life. From our introduction by faith into this grace, verse 2a, to the consummation of, of it all in glory, verse 2b, the hope of the glory of God. And then he goes on in the next verse to tell us what lies in between. And he uses a single word to describe it. Verse three, and not only this he writes, but we exalt in our what? Tribulations. Tribulations, plural, not singular, because heaven knows that, as David said in Psalm 34, 8, many are the tribulations of the righteous. The most important thing here is this. The first thing that comes to Paul's mind when he thought about what happens between the introduction and the consummation of the Christian life, between justification and glorification, is one word, and that is the word tribulation. Tribulations, which shouldn't be surprising if you know your Bible because it's all over the place in scripture. John 16, in the world you will have, Christ said, tribulation. Acts 14, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. First Thess 3, 3, no, let no man be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. In Revelation 1, John called himself a fellow partaker in the tribulations that are in Jesus. And Christ says exactly the same thing at the end of the Bible for emphasis. He sums it all up in his letters to the churches, the epistles of the Lord Jesus Christ to the churches. You might say the most important epistles in Revelation 2 and 3. He said this seven times to him who overcomes, he says, at the end of these letters, I will give thus and so, one reward, a glorious reward or another. To him who overcomes, I will give. To him who overcomes, I will give. He, he ended each and every one of his letters to the seven churches with exactly the same words. And in so doing, the Lord of the church, our Lord and Savior, the Lord of the Christian life characterized the Christian life for all time as a battle, as an overcoming battle through much tribulation. He who overcomes. So, if you're going through it right now, take heart. 
It's not just you. You're not alone. There's nothing wrong with you, more than there is with anyone else anyway. Nothing wrong with the Christian faith. Nothing wrong with God. Every writer of the scripture says the same thing, including Paul in our passage for today, who reminds us that between our introduction to the Christian faith and the consummation of the Christian faith will come the tribulations of the Christian faith. You know, a while back, a pastor I know went through this in a most unusual way for many long years. His wife developed a brain tumor uh, early on in their marriage, and she gradually lost all ability to function until she became an invalid, paralyzed from the neck down at the age of 50. And he took care of all her needs. He said that when it went on year after year, initially anyway, he found himself saying, wait a minute, Lord, I didn't sign up for this. I'm a pastor. Cut me a little slack. It sure wasn't in the contract I read, the one about the wonderful plan he has for our lives. Oy vey, why don't they ever read us a small print when we sign on to the faith? He had a wonderfully dry sense of humor in the midst of it all. We were driving to a pastor's conference at the time, and at one point he turned to me and said this, without any bitterness, but with a whole lot of brokenness, he said, Brian, you're still pretty young. It was my second year in ministry, and I felt like it was Joseph Parker training his pastors way back 100 years ago. You're still pretty young, so let me tell you something. Faith is pain. To be faithful is to be painful. I told, <laughs> I told him to watch the road, or it would become even more painful. He was driving. <laughs> he was turning to me and talking, but he, he was undeterred. Let me tell you something about faith, Brian. It can really hurt. We drove the west, rest of the way in silence, and that night after the first meeting, we happened to bunk together, and uh, so he picked up the conversation in the room, and he started telling me about the heroes of the faith as though I still really didn't get it because I was too young to really know. What happened to these heroes of the faith, he said? Did they experience peace and prosperity? This, this wonderful plan, this 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 pain-free life that we lead people to expect? Did they name it and claim it and get it? Did they realize their dreams by possibility thinking? What happened to them? And then he quoted from memory Hebrews 11, word for word. He said, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Just look what happened to them. And then he stopped. And again, there was a silence that I didn't dare fill. I couldn't. I thought, I've got a lot to learn. Just like many of you have already learned it. He sat down on the bed and took off the, uh, the baseball cap that he wore everywhere, the one that said, grace. Yeah, he was the one. He was the one who wore the hat that said grace. He, he was the one who knew about the grace 
in which he stood. He was the one who never forget that he's under grace, not wrath, under compassion, not condemnation, because tribulation does not equal rejection. And he took it off and went to sleep, leaving a young pastor with a, a whole lot to think about. So if tribulation does not equal rejection, what, what does it equal now? Well, that's the second half of Paul's point in this passage. It equals transformation. For not only this, verse three, but we exalt in our tribulations. And how is it that we can exalt in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character? He's not just talking about persecution here, but suffering of any kind. Tribulation is flipsis in the Greek. It's a general term in the Greek that literally translates pressure. He's saying that any and all kinds of painful pressure bring about perseverance and perseverance proven character. Because you see, in a fallen world, tribulation is God's secret of transformation. Without it, we'd get too lazy to persevere in a way that develops our character. Without it, life becomes a domed stadium. And so he doesn't take away the fire. No, he turns the fire, every fire, even if it's from the pit of hell into the refiner's fire. Every Christian has the hope, the promise, the unconditional guarantee, not of pleasurable gain, no, of of purposeful pain. The difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is not the degree of our suffering. No, it's the destiny of our suffering. And so Paul focuses on the result of our tribulation and says nothing about the reason, all sorts of reason. We may never know why it happens, but the Christian, as Christians, we always know what it does. The source of our suffering may be, you know, Satan, as it was with Job, or persecution, as may be coming upon us in this nation, or God's discipline, or a natural disaster, as is coming over our nation, or a medical emergency, or an economic calamity, or someone's stupidity, or our own stupidity, or the pain of some, you know, medical procedure that feels like labor and delivery once it's over. Tribulation may have a completely meaningless beginning, or at least an apparently senseless beginning, but for the Christian, it will never have a senseless ending. Why? Because tribulation equals transformation. It's the only way to become a seasoned veteran, and not just armchair quarterbacks who sit and soak in their pews. It's all about producing something that's as good as gold. It it always has a purpose that will make it more than worth it because God is good all the time, even through evil. Why? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope, the hope of the glory of God. And what does that mean? Well, it's the final point. It's purposeful pain that produces a priceless product. 
the glory of God. He is saying that character is a taste of glory. Of the glory of God, it's purposeful pain producing a priceless product. That proven character is the very substance of glory. It's like he says in 2 Corinthians 4, our light momentary affliction. He's summing up the whole Christian life there, which can feel like an eternity, but he's saying, no, it's the, bl- it's the blink of a life. Our light momentary affliction is producing us, as you all know, an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Glory in the Old Testament means heavy. And proving character is the weightiest substance on earth, heavier than gold itself, one that will someday turn into a glory beyond all imagining when we are gonna shine forth thanks to that glory like the sun, S-U-N, Christ says in Matthew 11, in the kingdom of the Father. Forever and ever. And all these passages, in them all, just like in our passage for today, he's talking about the priceless product of the refiner's fire. One that makes you less and less of a lightweight. A novice with more and more substance as the years go by. The heavyweight substance of the senior, of the seasoned veteran. The substance of heaven itself. Proving character is a priceless product of a lifetime of pressure, of hammering and hurting. As one man said, you may remember Raymond Edmonds' poem, when God wants to drill a man or a woman and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God can understand. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his glory out. Character. God knows what he's about. The great preacher R.W. Dale put it this way in a sermon he wrote titled, The Gospel of Suffering. Is that your gospel? It was Paul's gospel. He said, I say this is stern doctrine. To exalt in our tribulations, how is this possible? To count it all joy when suffering comes upon us and suffering that tests the faith, how is it possible? It is only possible when we come to think of righteous character being infinitely more precious. What are your values? It comes when we come to think of righteous character as being infinitely more precious than comfort, happiness, than the all-American values of comfort and happiness and peace. Peace and prosperity. When we come to see that the great thing for us in this life is not to enjoy ease and prosperity, to get rich, to rise in the world, but to become 
better men and women. You know, another great preacher, Henry Ward Beecher, we're going into great preachers. This used to be preached from the pulpits of America across the land. He said, happiness is not the end of life. Character is. Even marriage is not about your happiness. It's about your holiness. Fundamentally, that's what marriage is all about. Like Joey said yesterday at Gretchen Abel's wedding, he forewarned them, this is not gonna be easy. It's gonna be a refiner's fire. And so is the Christian life, because it's the same image. We are betrothed to the Son, who is perfecting us for our union in heaven. Like one man said, the Christian life is a rite of passage to be his wife, a narrow road to real life. It's not a way around tribulation, but a trek through it to a place of priceless treasure and prodigious pleasure. Ours is not a future of harps and clouds with aimless angels and cherubs and spineless saints awash in watercolor, nor is it a weightless glory, a cheapened heaven that costs us nothing, the pale calm of a bloodless bride. No, we're becoming hale and hearty in adversity to be weighty in glory just like him. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Speaking of wives, my friend's wife was taken home to be with the Lord after what seemed like an eternity. He ended up marrying a dear friend who attended the same church that he pastored where he still serves in, uh, to this day in Katy, Texas, Ronnie McDonald. And I tell you, the Lord has blessed and multiplied his ministry even over the radio. And has God glorified him or what? There's a depth in him, a weight, a weight of glory that will someday shine as brightly as his wife is shining now. Therefore, we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And we will see someday, as Paul ends by saying here, this hope will not disappoint. You will not be dis- disappointed when you see the fruit of your adversity and glory. This hope will not disappoint, Paul concludes, because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. As Paul says in Ephesians, the presence of his spirit in us is his guarantee, his pledge of the certainty of our inheritance. Until, he says, we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. These things are true. They are a firm foundation in a day when no one can agree on the truth. How firm a foundation. Don't we desperately need it? Ye saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word. I thought we'd take a minute or two just to respond to this in our own heart of hearts. The rest of the hymn 
We're not going to sing it, but I'd like to share it with you. It's actually one long promise, one that's for some of you here today. It's actually for all of you who know Christ as your Savior. It's a song that needs to be spoken to us as much as sung to him because God's doing the talking in this hymn. He's making a promise here, one that's so biblical, one that just about sums up our passage for today. So listen to something that's true for you, whatever you're going through. The love of God has been shed abroad in your heart, as Paul says in our last verse for today. So let his love speak to your heart right now. He's really there. As David asked the Lord, say to my soul, O Lord, I am your salvation. I am your salvation. We need to hear that. We need to hear him say this to our souls. So if it helps, close your eyes. Dial down and tune into him and let him say to your soul as you listen, I am your salvation. Fear not, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you, I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Father, thank you for the firm foundation that you've laid for our faith in your excellent word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit given to us that brings the person of Christ to our hearts. Thank you, Father, for your sovereignty in and through it all, bearing us up and bringing us home. O Trinity of love and power, we thank you that you are ours. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. On that foundation, as uh, Steve comes forward, we can fight the good fight as we close now with, uh, or not Steve, I'm sorry, Jeff, force a habit. Uh, we can fight the good fight on that foundation as we, uh, as uh, soldiers of the cross.